me encourage you to take your Bibles and join us again in the book of Judges, chapter 8. We'll conclude just the last two paragraphs of Judges 8 and then a few paragraphs in chapter 9. Judges, chapter 8, we'll begin reading in a minute in verse 29. You'll recall as we began this study, I think I was 17 when I began it, uh, but nonetheless, we're, we're near the finish line. Uh, we indicated that the book of Judges is uh, a very unique book in the Bible. Uh, number one, we don't know who wrote it. Uh, there's a famous story about a seminary professor who spotted, his, as he was teaching through uh, the Old Testament, he spotted one of his students who was asleep in class, and he called on him very loudly, Mr. So-and-so, and to which the student awakened in a start, said, tell us, who wrote the book of Judges? To which the student said, well, Dr. So-and-so, I'm sorry, I forgot. To which the professor responded, you forgot? Scholars have been studying the book of Judges for centuries trying to decide who wrote the book of Judges and you knew it and forgot it? Yes, don't go to sleep in class. But you can go to sleep in church if you trust the preacher. That's my interpretation of everybody who sleeps in church. You trust me, so you're just going to take a nap. No, don't go to sleep here either. We're going to consider, uh, again, the book of Judges. Judges is a strange book because it's all about violence and war and difficulty of every kind brought on by the sin of man. It is not a book that glorifies man in any way. And in fact, it shows uh, how pitiful man can be when he forgets God. Because that's the theme of the book of Judges. They want very much to have an earthly king because they have rejected their heavenly king. We'll see eventually as we move into 1 Samuel that Samuel is going to... Uh, come right out and say that. Samuel himself being the last of the judges is going to say uh, they, they want a king and that's a, a sin and God acknowledges that that is sinful that they have rejected him. Not so much that they want an earthly king but that they want a substitute because they have rejected God. This is the great challenge by the way. I need to, this is a parenthetical comment but it needs to be said again and again and again. It's a, it's a problem for the church because the church sometimes can get enmeshed in the governmental system. That's a problem because we want to say that somehow our highest allegiance is to political leaders or governmental leaders. In fact, that's not true. That's never been true. Even when uh, God provided uh, kings like David or Solomon or others that we could mention, uh, God never intended that somehow David's authority would usurp the authority of God. That ultimately now in, in the 21st century here in Western democracies, we have a, an even more difficult challenge. We have no government sanctioned in the way that in the Old Testament it is sanctioned. Sanctioned by God. Obviously, a, a governments are raised up by God. Clearly, the Bible is clear on that but sanctioned by God that the, that the work of these governments somehow should take authority over the authority of God in our lives. We are citizens of two kingdoms. 
And we must keep it straight. And it is beholding to us to fight the good fight every day to know the difference between our allegiances to Caesar and our allegiances to God. And they are not the same. They are both valid, but they are not the same. And the notion that somehow we will ever bow to Caesar in regards to the things to which we must bow to God is anathema to God. It is not the plan of God for our lives. We must be careful. We must fight that good fight day after day after day to help one another to see and to be discerning. Well, that's what's going on here. They have wanted kings and God won't give them kings. Instead, he gives them judges. Most, for the most part, judges are military leaders. Uh, and we see that God gives peace in the midst of their sinfulness through a judge. So there's a, if you will, there is this cesspool of unbelief in uh, the part of God's people. And God allows for this opposing army to come in. It could be the Midianites, could be the Philistines, as we shall see with Samson, could be any number of others. They come in and they begin to pillage and, and uh, bring sorrow and, and shame upon Israel. And uh, they cry out to God, oh God, come and save us. Because that's what we do when we're in trouble. We cry out to God as we should. We should have been doing that before we got into trouble, which is why we got into trouble. We stopped doing that. So they cry out to God and God sends a deliverer. And the deliverer might be some person that we've heard a lot about, like Gideon or Samson or a number of other judges that we've heard very little about. And we have considered several of them in our study. But in the end, this judge would come in as a military leader and he would put an end to this opposing army and there would be peace. And God was to be praised because he sent these men and in some cases women to, to save Israel, to save Israel from these opposing armies and to be a resource to them so that the plan of God might go forward. So this is a period of 200, 225 years that encompasses the book of Judges uh, between the death of Joshua and the coming ultimately of the first king, uh, the king Saul in uh, Samuel. So we shall continue to think about these judges. Today we come to uh, one who would be judge, would be king actually, and in some measure is actually made king, but he is not, does not have the hand of God. Uh, many commentators on this particular circumstance call this man that we look at today, the man called Abimelech. Abimelech. Abimelech is, is, is actually the anti-judge, the anti-judge. He's not a judge. He's not even a king, except he becomes king. But he does so by the sheer exercise of unmitigated power and evil, by the way. So we consider this story. It's interesting here um, in, in the book of Judges, there are two introductions in the book, as we've already seen, and there are going to be two conclusions. You'll be good and glad to know I'm going to combine the conclusions. But there, there are two introductions and two conclusions. In the middle, there are 12 judges. Six of them are major judges. We, we hear a lot about them. Othniel and Ehud, so forth. Uh, obviously, the more, the more significant, Gideon, Samson. Uh, we, we know about them. Six of them are major judges. Seven, uh, six of them are minor judges. We know virtually nothing more than their names. 
And then right in the middle here in chapter 8, chapter 9, is this character, this guy named Abimelech. And Abimelech is not a judge, which begs the question, why is he in the book? Because he is an illustration. He is an illustration of what can happen or what does happen when men forget God. And what happens when God allows men to forget God and then he just brings the judgment of God upon them by allowing them to have their merry way. They don't want God, so he lets them go. Let's them do what they want. And they bring sorrow and sadness and destruction not only upon them, themselves and their family, but also, in the case of Abimelech, the entire people. So we're going to consider this man, Abimelech. Now, it's quite a story, and I don't have time to read all of this, so I, I will summarize it for the most part. But we're going to read a portion of the beginning, and then we're going to read the end of the story uh, as we try to make four applications. So let's start in verse 29 of Judges chapter 8. Jerubbabel, which is the other name for Gideon. So this is Gideon. Anytime you see that name, that's Gideon by his other name. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. By the way, I need to stop. Anytime one of the heroes of the Bible has a lot of wives, people get freaked out. Now, if I were Gideon, I'd be freaked out. But that's another story, right? So we say, well, how is it that God blessed this man who is doing this sinful thing? <laughs> Name me one man, any man. that God is not blessed in spite of his sin. He said, well, Gideon's sin is different than my sin. No duh, Sherlock. Yeah, I don't know anybody running around here with 70 wives. He said, how do you know that's a sin? Because the Bible says it is. Well, why did God bless him? Because he wanted to. Why didn't God bless me? He already has. He still is. He's blessing you even here this morning. Your heart's beating and your lungs are processing CO2. Otherwise, you'd be toxic laying on the carpet. You'd interrupt this service because we'd have to call the paramedics. God is save, save, serving us all by making your lungs work for a little while longer today. God blesses us all in spite of our sin. Is Gideon a sinner? He sure is. Does the Bible ever commend polygamy? Never. Does the Bible use polygamy? Always. Just like God uses our sin to accomplish His will. That's a mystery, isn't it? Strange. Thanks be to God that God doesn't use me just because I'm perfect. Since I've never been that, I'd never be used of God and neither would you. So it always causes people angst when they see that Gideon had 70 sons. Verse 31, turns out it gets worse. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. Oh, now he's got, he's got a bunch of wives, but he's also got a concubine, which is Old Testament terminology for girlfriend. 
or mistress or lady in another town. And he called his name Abimelech. So he has a son by a woman in Shechem named Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Oprah of the Abiezrites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-Bebereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord, their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So two things we note. They forgot God and they forgot Gideon. Now, verse 1, chapter 9. Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Now I'll stop here a moment to kind of summarize this story. It turns out that Abimelech is a conniving politician who wants to be king. So he says to the men of Shechem, that's his mother's family, right? Remember, she's the concubine from Shechem. Shechem has a long history in the Old Testament. You can do a little research on your own there. Uh, It's between two important mountains uh, in North Israel. And uh, Shechem is an important crossroads. The the, the road that comes up from Egypt that, that comes along the Mediterranean has to eventually go east and go into Syria. And in order to do that, there, there, there is a, if you will, there is a pathway, a familiar road. And uh, that, the town of Shechem lies on that path that, that takes the, the trade out of Egypt that goes through Israel and on up into Syria and Damascus and all the way over into modern-day Iraq and Iran, so forth. So all that passed through Shechem. So think of this. Shechem is a town that's built on a six-lane freeway. And people are traveling all the time. It's an important city in the ancient world. But it's about to meet its Waterloo. It's another important place later. In the case of of this man, Abimelech, he uh, appeals to his mother, or if you will, appeals to his people, his mother's people. He says, now listen, what would be better for you people in Shechem to be ruled by the 70 sons of Gideon? I mean, Gideon's got a lot of sons. And if, if you're having to sort of pay tribute to all of them, if you're having to, to bow down to all of them, I mean, that's just going to get messy and sloppy. And, and of course it would be. If, there, if there's 70 people in charge, nobody's in charge. I mean, it's a free-for-all. And uh, he says, I'll tell you what's better. What's better is you should, you should bow down to me. I have the credentials because I'm the son of Gideon. But I also have other credentials. I am a son of Shechem. I am a son of a woman from this city. And you people are my people. Only, only on my mother's side. But nonetheless, I have the credentials that the other sons of Gideon 
do not have. So therefore, you should, you should bow down to me. So that's precisely what they do. They say, okay, that's good. Now here's how it plays out. Verse 3. So his mother's relatives spoke all these words on, behalf, on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. These are the political operatives. They go around and they say, hey, let's, uh, we're, we're trying to you know, uh, raise support for Abimelech. So they go around and they do that. Their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. He's one of us. So they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bereth. Remember, that's the God that they turned to back in the end of chapter 8. They went into the temple treasury. They went to the church office and they got some money. And they hire mercenaries. This is what happens here. He was our brother, gave him 70 pieces for which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah, which is a sister town, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubabel, 70 men on one stone. On one stone. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's a figure of speech to indicate that this is, in fact, a, an organized uh, cleansing. One stone. Essentially, all these mercenaries gather all of the 70 sons of Gideon, and they bring them to this one place, and then they are ritually killed. 70 of them put to death on this stone. So there's a place where all these men are going to be killed and Abimelech is going to oversee that by means of his hired mercenaries and it all happens here at a cost of 70 pieces of silver. Does this sound like a modern movie? Yes. Turns out everything modern is actually really, really old. So they killed his younger, his brothers and all the leaders, verse 6, of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, which is another little community, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. All right, so there's the first part of the story. So Abimelech becomes king by means of two things. One, a vicious murder, cleansing of his entire family. I mean, this is, uh, this is gangster boss stuff here. He, he kills his entire family, everybody who's a competitor. And secondly, by means of evil people in Shechem, they decide to, to ordain this, to certify this, to approve this, to authorize this. And they do so. And then they make Abimelech king. And uh, so here we have this guy who's been made king by unrighteous people through unrighteous means, and he is now the king. Remember, Israel wants a king. They're going to have one. They're going to have one if it, if it requires cleansing an entire man's family. So, verse 7, the narrative continues. It was told to Jotham. And he went and he stood. Excuse me, I, I jumped ahead. Verse, uh, verse 5, the conclusion there, Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left for he hid himself. Jotham is the youngest son of Gideon. So he's hiding out. And he escapes. So he goes to Mount Gerizim, which is the town's mountain, the mountain that kind of looks over the town. And there he gets on a, what's probably a large outcropping of rock, and he, he sort of puts his hands together and he yells uh, a curse 
So the next section of this scripture is this curse. I need to read this curse because it's going to come back here in a minute. So let's, let's read this beginning in verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and he stood on Mount Gerizim and he cried aloud and he said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees, and he tells a fable, is a fable about trees. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men's are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. The fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? And I'm going to stop here. I want you to note three things. All right? So this is a fable about the trees looking for a king. Hey, so they appealed, first of all, to the olive tree. Now, the olive tree in ancient Israel is very significant because olives obviously a part of life. Uh, if you had, a, a, if you will, a good uh, group of olive trees, then you would, you would not only have enough for your own family, but you would be able to sell the oil and so forth. And... Uh, it, it, it's a testament of money, of provision. You, you've got a little because you're an olive grower. Olives are very important, very, very important. Then he goes to the fig tree. Again, the figs would grow in that climate and uh, the fruit would be uh, delectable and, and they, would, they would enjoy those. And so every meal would have included figs as, if possible. It was, it was very desirable. So fig trees are very popular. Again, a testament to the fact that, that you're blessed. Then he goes to the vine, the vineyard. We all know uh, water is hard to come by, but uh, wine uh, was, was, was consumed at virtually every meal and uh, would have been the sustaining uh, liquid, if you will, of the culture. So here we have olives, figs, grapes. So you appeal to these. These are the three most important horticultural assets in all of Israel. So the trees are looking for a king and they appeal to, to people who actually have credentials, right? I mean, the olive tree, the, the fig tree, the, vin, the vine, they actually have credentials. Hey, you come, you rule over us. And they all said no. So the fable continues. Verse 14. Then all the trees said to the bramble, Bramble. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you read, the King James here has thorn bush. Now, poison ivy doesn't have thorns, but it is nonetheless despicable. Anybody who's ever been afflicted. But we're all familiar with these vines that grow around that have brambles or thorns, stickers. So, now what's the difference between a fig tree and a thorny bramble? A lot. One actually has respect, and the other, you can't wait to get rid of. You're going to cut that and get rid of it. You don't want anything to do with that. So here's the point of the fable, isn't it? He appeals to the bramble. You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. By the way, a bramble has no shade. 
But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now the cedars, the cedar tree would have been a, uh, a very prominent asset as well. Cedars are not typically grown in Israel. They had to go to Lebanon. That's where the forests were. So the mountainsides of Lebanon, you'll see this again and again throughout the Old Testament literature. The cedars of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon, very powerful uh, metaphor in Scripture. What's going on? He said, well, let the bramble take over the cedars of Lebanon. Well, that, that's a reversal of what you would expect. You want a king who's going to come in and you're going to cause prosperity. You want a king who's going to come in and cause security. The only reason you need a king ostensibly is because he's going to provide some benefit to your family. But if he burns the house down, he's not a help. But that's precisely the curse that's told by this fable. So he ends that fable, verse 16 and following, and I won't belabor it, but it essentially says, if you've done the right thing by killing 70 of Gideon's sons, then we will see. But if you have not, then I trust that you'll be destroyed even as the bramble fire would burn through the cedars of Lebanon. So he announces this curse, Jotham. The, the last son, the baby son of Gideon, the only one left other than Abimelech. So we could read on and on and on, and we won't do that, but I will come to the end of the story, tell you how it all ends up. The, the end of the story is that Abimelech uh, becomes king and he rules for three years. But the Bible says that God sent an evil spirit to war against Abimelech, he raised up some dissension among the people. And uh, they began to war against Abimelech. And so they began to threaten Abimelech. And they, you have these political operatives who are uh, wanting to bring him down, so forth. And so they go to war. And they do. And they come against Shechem. And uh, Abimelech gets, gets word of this. And uh, he comes against them as well. And, and he wins this battle at Shechem. So Shechem is the main town, place where it's all happening. And uh, as we're going to see, the people retreat to a citadel inside the city, a, a, a tower, if you will. He's going to get bushes, light these bushes on fire, and then he's going to burn the tower, and a thousand people are going to die. That's going to happen in Shechem. And then he's going to go off to another town, a neighboring town, and he's going to pursue the remnants of this insurrection and we're going to see what happens to Abimelech so we have to read the story beginning in verse 46 we jumped over there so when all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it they entered the stronghold of the house of El Bereth that's a, one of their gods and Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together and Abimelech went up to Mount Zaman and he and all the people were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand, cut down all, a bundle of brushwood, took it up, laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what you've seen me do, hurry and do as I've done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. They set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes. Now that's the next town. And he encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within that city. And all the men and all women and all the leaders of the city fled to it, shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. 
And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it, draw new to, uh, drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. In other words, this strategy worked once, I'm going to try it again. And a certain woman, verse 53, threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And you might be curious, what is, it, what is a millstone? Well, you can imagine in a mill where they would crush grain, there would be a large stone and then there'd be a smaller stone. The large stone would what we might call the table, the place where they would actually crush the grain, separate the grain, so forth. So there was a very large stone that no one could lift. But then there's a hand stone, if you will. There's, it's called the upper stone. So you have the lower stone and the upper stone. Think maybe a large baked potato kind of stone. Probably weighed four or five, maybe even six pounds. Who knows exactly? But anyway, this woman has retreated. She's in Thebes. She has retreated into the tower for safety. And she takes her baked potato stone with her, upper millstone. Now, interesting, you got to climb this tower and she's carrying this four or five pound weight. And you have to ask yourself, why would she do that? Because this is the only weapon she's got. I mean, they're running for their lives. They're about to die. And the only weapon she's got is a stone. So she gets up and she's looking out on top of Abimelech, who's down on the, on the ground. We don't know how tall this tower is. Uh, archaeology hasn't even found this particular tower yet. But let's assume she's at least second floor, maybe third floor. Maybe this is a big tower. Who knows? But somewhere she's got access to, to throwing the rock. So she's got this four or five pound rock this baked potato, and she throws it at Abimelech. And Mickey Mantle didn't have a better arm than this woman. I mean, she hit him in the head. I mean, that's, that's, that's spot on. Crushed his skull. Interesting, isn't it, how brief the story is of the death of Abimelech. Verse 53, a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and he said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. By the way, if you read the book of Judges, you'll recall that women do a lot of the killing. Yes, they do. In verse 55, and when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, Everybody went home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of, of Jerubbabel, Gideon. Well, that's the end of Abimelech. And you say, well, what's the value of that particular story? Well, there's several. I'm going to give you four applications quickly that I hope will be of help to you. Go back to chapter 8, the end there. The first thing I want you to know is that the threat of idolatry is always present, regardless of yesterday's faithfulness. The threat of idolatry is always present, regardless of yesterday's faithfulness. Notice what happens in chapter 8, verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, and who's Gideon? Gideon is a man of faith. He is a man that God raised up. He's a man that God honored, God used. God made much of God through the life of Gideon. So during the reign of Gideon, during the rule of Gideon, during the judgeship of Gideon, God blesses Israel. 
So it's a time of great faithfulness. And now, at the end of Gideon's life, the people revert back to idolatry. So the threat of idolatry is always present regardless of yesterday's faithfulness. They did not remember. They did not somehow remember that the greatest threat in their life is their own faithfulness. How present is this in our own lives today? All of us, I suspect, have some experience with God. And I would suspect that for many of us, our experience with God has been life-altering. And yet, in spite of that, we, as we've just saying here this morning, we are prone to wander. How is it that people who have been touched by the faithfulness of God, have seen the hand of God, seen the mercies of God again and again and again, and sometimes in more powerful ways than we could ever say, can find themselves adrift or detached from God and how it can happen just like that. We have a short attention span. We want to remark all the time about the children of Israel. You know, God did marvelous things in delivering Israel out of Egypt. He brought them to the... First of all, He did all the plagues, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if, uh, if I'm watching the plague of the firstborn, the tenth and final plague, and all the Egyptian families have lost their firstborn, and my family has not, and all the people or the people of God have not because of the Passover experience... And then God gives us their money. We, we take all of their gold and silver and so forth. They just pay us to leave. And then we leave. And then we come to the Red Sea. And of course, there's this threat of Pharaoh and all that. But then God parts the sea and we walk across on dry land. Then Moses waves his staff and the waters come back. I mean, I'm pretty, pretty sure that's kind of life-changing experience. I mean, you talk about going to the mountain, being with God being close to God and seeing the hand of God. And yet, by the time they get to Sinai, they want to go back to Egypt. How can people think like this? How can people respond like this? And the reality is, we do it all the time. It turns out the threat of idolatry is always present. It's interesting, isn't it, that the two greatest commandments, as we know, the teachings of Jesus, love God, Deuteronomy 6, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, two greatest commandments, upon these hang all the law and the prophets. What's going on in Deuteronomy chapter, or rather in uh, Judges chapter 9? It's a failure of those two commandments. They don't love God, and therefore they don't love their neighbor. They kill 70 sons in a planned execution. Then they elect a man king who supervises all this. Then they just continue unabated in their worship of pagan gods, fertility gods. It requires all kinds of pagan worship, idolatrous practices. How, how do they get there? Because you see, friend, if you deny the first commandment, love God, 
you find it increasingly easy to deny the second. People say all the time about people, you know, he's just mean. Why is he mean? I don't know. I don't know. Might take a minute to figure it out. But I can tell you where we're going to end up. He's mean. He's evil. Because he's forgotten God. Because he's become an idolater. Why do people get angry? Because they forget God. They turn themselves into gods. I'm angry because you're not doing what I want you to do. I, 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 me, 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 me. The threat of idolatry is always present. And the number one idol in my life is me. And I don't know you that well, friend, but I'll tell you, the number one idol in your life is you. What's the problem in Abimelech's life? Same problem. He made much of Abimelech, not much of God. And that permits him to take 70 of his brothers and have them murdered. You say, well, I'm not that low. Of course you're not. We wouldn't be in the same room with you if you were. But the root is the same. The soil is the same. It's the heart of man. And our love of God and our love of neighbor is always compromised by idolatry. At root, the great threat of our lives is our idolatry. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Be careful, friend. Don't fail to remember. Please, the greatest threat in your life is always idolatry. And we see that plainly here in Judges chapter 8, chapter 9. There's a second thing. Chapter 9, verse 1 and following. Sometimes God's judgment is not to restrain evil, to let evil have its way. Sometimes God's judgment is simply to not restrain evil. In other words, God gives us what we want, even gives us what we deserve. What do they want in Abimelech's day? They want a king. God let them have one. You say, well, it came at a high price. Seventy men lost their lives. Yes, they did. Seventy wives lost their husbands. Seventy families lost their father. Yes, that's right. And who knows? That's just the sins that's recorded here. Who knows what else has gone on? I assure you the list, no doubt, would have been long. What is the problem here? They want a king. They, they have rejected the one true king, God, in favor of this character named Abimelech. Turns out he's a bad king. They, God gave them what they wanted. Sometimes God's judgment is not to restrain evil. Listen, I can't argue from silence all that I believe that God is doing in my life today or in yours, what God is doing in our church, what God is doing in our community. I can't tell you all that God is doing in our country. I can't. Neither can anybody else. When people start talking like that, well, I know what God's doing. No, they don't. Because the only reason we know what God is doing is because he actually tells us. The people who are living in real time in Judges chapter 9, they don't know this is God. They don't know what God's doing, what God has or has not done. They don't know that. We have an advantage on them that we ought to be smarter about. Because we can read the book of Judges and we could say, Aha! 
Sometimes God simply takes his hand off of people and let people run and people get what they deserve. They get what they want. God lets evil run amok. So, well, if I were God, I would never do that. <laughs> well, if you were God, we'd all be doomed. Sometimes God's judgment is not to restrain evil. It's interesting about these judges. You know, we've read about these judges, and they all served multiple years. You know, some of them 30 years as judges. 30 years. Just, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. The good news about Abimelech is he only serves three years. Three years. Isn't it great to see that God limits the restraint of evil to only three years? And then he comes and he intervenes. Sometimes God's judgment is not to restrain evil. Be, be careful. Be careful, friend. Just because you can dream it up doesn't mean it's righteous. Just because you want it doesn't mean it's righteous. Just because you think this is the wise thing to do doesn't mean it's righteous. And just because the majority feels a certain way certainly doesn't mean it's righteous. We are the people of God. We are the people who have to be discerning. We have to be the people who have to be wise. We are the people who have to pay attention to what's going on and to see, as it were, behind the curtain, to know we have to, we have to think biblically about evil and to understand that unrestrained power like this in the hands of a man without, if you will, a moral compass in the case of Abimelech, is going to lead where it leads. It's going to end up where it ends up. And it certainly has right here. Sometimes God's judgment is not to restrain evil, to let it go. There's a third thing we see here in verse 23. Scripture says that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. God sent an evil spirit and created a ruckus between Abimelech and the town council, the leaders of Shechem. Our application is simply that God is at work even when we don't know it or recognize it. I've already said, the only reason we know this is because the book of Judges tells us that God is sovereign even over evil. Remember this about Job. Satan made an appeal to God, I want to destroy him. And God set the boundaries. You can, but you can't. You can, but you can only go this far. Remember this. God is sovereign over everything. Even the limits of evil. Even the discretion of evil. You say, well, that will blow my mind trying to think about that. Understand all of that. Well, don't worry about it. You just know this. You're in the sovereign hand of God. That's what you need to know. He loves you and he's at work. Everything that happens in the world is not good. There is ample evil to go around, and it's present. It's crouching at the door, and many of it is my own doing and your doing. But having said that, we are in the sovereign hand of God. He is greater than us. He is at work even when we don't know it or we don't even recognize it. His seeming silence does not equate to his absence. Just because you can't see God, hear God, quote, feel God, 
Listen. Be careful about appealing to your feelings. Your feelings will lie to you a lot. I don't feel, I don't feel like God is here. <laughs> really? Well, you know, he lives within me. So everywhere I go, he's there. Whether you feel him or not, he's here. And you know why he's here? Not because the choir sang well. Not because the choir sang your song. Not because the church sang your song. Not because the preacher's good or bad. Or any other of a thousand things that people want to blame. The reason God's here is because the people of God are here. So, well, there's a lot more people of God. Yep, God's there too. Praise God. He's all over town. He's in house after house after house after house after house after house. He's in life after life after life. Be careful that you don't base your reaction to God on your feelings. Susan and I have been married a long time. There have been many days when she didn't feel married. There have been days when I didn't feel married. Those were usually the days when I was being selfish. Occasionally, maybe, okay, twice, I think, in 42 years, she was selfish. But we're not going there, okay? So the rest of that is on me. But the point, of course, is the feelings are fleeting. God's silence doesn't mean God is absent. The fact that you can't see him or hear him or feel him doesn't mean he's not working. What's going on in Abimelech's day? He's killing people, friend. He's got putting people on a stone. He rounded up 70 of his blood kin and killed them all. Doesn't sound very godly to me. Where's God? Right here. Well, why isn't he doing something? I don't know. Because God's judgment is God's business. God's silence is God's business. My job is to be faithful. My job is to love God and love my neighbor as myself. God's silence doesn't mean that God is absent. <laughs> Go down to verse 56. Show you this quickly. 56. The Bible says, thus God, God is the subject of that verb. God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. What, what's going on here? Abimelech dies. How did he die? A, a, a sweet potato hit him in the head. Five-pound millstone hit him in the head, crushed his skull. Really, who threw it? A woman. You see what's going on here? The great warrior king, how does he get killed? He gets killed by a rock. Who threw it? A woman. Man, this story gets worse. God brought shame to Abimelech. Why? Because Abimelech deserved every bit of it and worse. And the scripture says, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father and killing his 70 brothers. And God also, God's the subject of this verb, also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. Remember, their town is destroyed. Their entire town is destroyed by Abimelech. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Who wins in the end? God. Who sees to it that God wins? 
God. Who's in charge of your life? God. Who's shepherding the details of your life? God. What's this all about? It's all about God. Listen, I'm going to live my 70 years. I'm going to live my 80 years. I'm going to live my 92 years. However long God's going to let me live. And then I'm done. But God continues. God is the rock who doesn't move. I'm going to fly away. He's not. God's at work even when you don't know it or don't recognize it. God's at work right here, right here this morning. He's at work. There's the last thing. And that is simply that Romans 1.18 is still true. Turn there. Romans 1.18. In fact, I won't wait for you. Let me read it. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. A couple things stand out here in Romans 1.18. Number one, God is committed to the truth. We learn in the New Testament that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God is committed to the truth. He's committed to his own son. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the one to whom God is committed. And there are people who are standing in the way of Jesus. And they do so by their unrighteousness. And by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They cloud the truth. They, 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 if you will, they, they mess up the truth. They confuse the truth. They, they pervert the truth by their unrighteousness. God is judging that. God is working through that. God is causing that eventually to go away. I've told you a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand and one times. There is one narrative in the Bible, and that is the securing of the seed of the woman to the end. There's a story that originates in Genesis 3 that ends up ultimately in Revelation 20, 21, 22, where there is this great unveiling of the Son of God, the Lion of Judah, the Son of David, the Son of God. And there is a marriage supper where we all gather and the seed of the woman is delivered safely home safely home through all kinds of turns and hills and nooks and challenges and evil and so forth and the latest installment of evil is judges chapter 9 some character named abimelech who decides he's going to kill the sons of gideon and he does and he rules for three years as a complete pagan and he hates God, and he hates the people of God, and he hates the message of God, and he's going to see to it that that is eradicated from the face of the earth, except he's not in charge. And God visits his wrath on the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. God is protecting his seed he is protecting his story. Listen, that's why the church will prevail. That's why the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Because God is going to see to it that it does. The only hope this church and every other church has is God. Not a better preacher. There's a thousand better preachers. There's a thousand better everything. 
That's not the secret. The secret sauce, friend, is the Spirit of God working through the people of God who want to walk righteously in love with the Son of God. So what do we learn from Abimelech? (laughs) Well, a whole lot. We learn, first of all, that's no way to live. There's another way to live, and it's the way of submission. It's the way of loving God and loving your neighbor and loving the son who came to make it all possible. I beg of you today, read the story of Abimelech and rejoice. And read the story of Abimelech. And if necessary, repent. And give your life fully to the God who doesn't want us to suppress the truth in any way. Let us get out of the way or God will get us out of the way so that the truth will go forward. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as we read these tragic stories, we are challenged, challenged to think about our own lives, how serious we are about you, how serious we're not about you how serious we should be. I thank you, God, that you're greater than Abimelech. You're greater than all the Abimelechs in all the world. You're greater than the tyrants of the world. There are tyrants alive and well today. We hear about them, and we don't hear about them. But they're there. And you're the God who's greater than their troubles and the troubles they brought on their people. The loss of life these people who suppress righteousness. I pray, God, for the church, for the people of God. I pray, Father, we will bow the knee not to earthly kings, but to our Heavenly Father. And we'll get our marching orders from you. Understand, Father, that you're the King of kings. We want to love you well, serve you well, and honor you and all we do. Father, thank you for Christ who came that we might have life and who died that we may never die. Give us grace to see him and believe him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Before you go,